welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Andrea Combs, and with me in the studio tonight is my dad, Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome. Andrea, good to have you in the studio. Always good to be here. Thanks, Dad. Today we'll be discussing the power of Pentecost, as this Sunday, the 5th of June, is Pentecost Sunday. So, Dad, can you tell us how important is it to observe a Christian calendar? I think it's super important because just look what the secular humanists want to center their calendars around. May Day, Halloween, Youth Day, Women's Day, Freedom Day. That sounds pretty secular. Uh, Whereas look at our heritage faith, a Christian calendar, Christmas, the greatest holiday of the year, the incarnation, the greatest gift, God with us, God's come to this earth. Good Friday, most solemn, serious day of the year when we consider the awful price paid for our sins. Resurrection Sunday, the most joyous celebration of the year. Christ is risen, victorious of a death, hell, and a grave. And Ascension Day, which we celebrated last week, Thursday. How important is that to focus on Christ is risen, ascended, King of kings, Lord of lords, come again to judge the living and dead. But you know, the fifth most important is Pentecost Sunday. Where would we be without the power of Pentecost? So yes, the events that a society chooses to center its calendar around are super important. And remember, the etymology of holiday is Holy Day. Absolutely. And and yet this is not something that our schools observe these days. I know with our son Jeremy in school, he doesn't have the day off because it's day of Pentecost. Although, as you say, it's a Sunday. But Ascension, day, Ascension day would have been a public holiday. And yet they were still in school that day. They were let out early. They had a um, Ascension Day assembly. That's However, more than most. They That's didn't something. have the day off. But yes. it used to be a public holiday in South Africa right until 1994. Shocking. Like you say, Christmas, Easter, all that we still celebrate, but they've all been secularized. So it's it's a shame that the day of Pentecost or Pentecost Sunday is not observed nationally anymore. But it certainly should be it in should all be. of our churches. I agree. So can you explain to us uh, in more detail why should Christians celebrate Pentecost? Pentecost is all about the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at this, we see this is what the church needs. Yes, of course, we need to focus on the fact that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas has got a very important message of of Emmanuel, God with us. Good Friday, the atonement, how we are saved, super important. Resurrection Sunday, Christ is the first fruits. He is the first risen from dead. He is the guarantee that those who have died in Christ are not dead but will rise in Christ. He is the resurrection life. That is so important. But we can't stop there. We have to go on to Ascension Day, which is all about the authority of Christ, the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life. But how do we apply the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life? How do we fulfill the Great Commission without the power of Pentecost? Because in and of ourselves, we're not able to preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of all nations. How are we able to effectively teach obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded? Unless we wait in the city for the power that the Lord has promised to come upon us. And so that the Lord warned us of the dangers and he promised the power of the Holy Spirit. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And the Lord says that it's better I go away so that I can send the Holy Spirit, the comforter upon you. And so it's so important for us to have this. And unfortunately, a lot of what goes on in church and missions is done in the power of man not in the power of God. It's all too easy for us to 
get focused on the work and miss out on the worship. And yet our walk with God is even more important than our work for God. It's so vital. So the emphasis on, on Pentecost, there are some churches that emphasize Pentecost, and they're called the Pentecostals for this reason. But why would not every Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, brethren, why should you all uh, not want to be focusing on Pentecost? Just one group of denominations doesn't have the corner on the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a biblical truth, and it's so vital that I don't understand why it is that so many churches are scared of it, as though, you know, well, if we focus on the third person of the Trinity, we, we might become extremists. Well, we certainly will become cold and ineffective if we don't. We've got to have a biblical balance, yes, but the Bible teaches a lot about the power of God and the power of Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit, and our God is a consuming fire if we don't understand what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit and the implications of why he came and what he has come to empower us for, we will not be effective. We certainly can't fulfill the Great Commission without the power of Pentecost. I completely agree. Do you think it's possible that the church has simply forgotten about Day of Pentecost since it's not observed as a national holiday? It could be. It certainly seems that there's not much emphasis. And I mean, I remember when I was converted 45 years ago in, in in the Baptist Church, Pentecost Sunday was important. And they they preached and they taught on the importance of it. And I must say, I got a very good, thorough introduction to discipleship as a brand new Christian from a secular background when I was converted. But I haven't heard the same kind of emphasis on Pentecost in recent years that I remember hearing back in the 70s. And there was a lot more fervency. For example, what was very common when I was converted in the 70s was after meetings. So this is an interesting thing. It came out of the revivals of the 1860s and so on, where uh, at the end of a service, which could be really dramatic and youth service and so on, they would often ask those who wanted further counseling or wanted to commit themselves to whatever they were challenging people for, deeper life and so on, stay behind for an after service. So while everyone else went for tea, coffee in the church hall, there were others who'd stay in the church or they might have it that going into a back room, um, a side hall or the pastor's uh, study, and these after services were quite common. We, we would think, I don't know when I last saw something like that happen, but it just showed that there was a hunger for it. And then also, I remember when the AEB, African Evangelistic Band, was organizing holiness conventions. I mean, gee, that's interesting. And deeper life conventions. And then we had Keswick. The Keswick Convention was regularly held at, at downtown uh, in, in the um, Synod Hall, which is opposite from where the Orange Street Baptist Church was. And uh, it would be packed, and you'd have Alan Redpath and Ray, um, uh, Roger Volk and other key speakers speaking on the deeper life, especially about holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember the amount of people teaching on the need for the second blessing, the need for the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, quoting from R.A. Torrey and D.L. Moody and many others, and Andrew Murray's teachings were often there about the power of Pentecost. So uh, this was a greater emphasis in the 70s and 80s, and I don't know what happened, but I can't remember when last somebody was talking about the need for uh, these kind of deeper life conventions. And and this is what Pentecost symbolizes. Amazing. Well, there's clearly a lot of history here, and it is sad that we've moved away from it. Now, beyond uh, us as Christians, what are the missionary implications of Pentecost? How does it affect missionaries specifically? Oh, huge. Because, I mean, just think that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in like a 
mighty rushing wind, and there were tongues of fire on each person. And what was the first thing they did? They rushed out in the streets and they preached the word of God. They proclaimed God's word with boldness in the many languages represented where there were people from almost all over the Roman Empire and the known world at that stage, from all over what would today be North Africa and the Middle East and even Europe. And there they were in Jerusalem and they all heard the gospel in their own language. I mean, this is miraculous, but in the context, bearing in mind Pentecost, was always celebrated 50 days after the first fruits. So it, it makes sense. What we've got is uh, the Lord dies on Passover. He is raised on the, on the time of the celebration of the first fruits. And then 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, which is the harvest festival, and the people are going to be singing Psalm 67, Bless us, O Lord, make your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us so that your ways may be known throughout the earth, your uh, your words amongst all peoples. May the heathen praise you, may all the peoples praise you, O God. And the land has produced its harvest. So Psalm 67 is a missionary psalm which had to be sung on Pentecost Sunday. It was, of course, part of the Old Testament festivals, all of which point to Christ. All of them. Christ is the first fruits. He is a Passover lamb. And on Pentecost, he sent the power of the Holy Spirit and the land yielded its harvest. Now, it's quite clear throughout the book of Acts, whenever people were filled with the Holy Spirit, the response was they went out and proclaimed God's word with boldness. And people got converted and people got baptized and churches were established and the Great Commission was being fulfilled. So plainly, what we're dealing with in all of these places is a missionary work. And so... This is what makes Pentecost so vital. And I wonder if it doesn't speak to our society becoming very me-centered, man-centered, comfort zone, health and wealth, name and claim, prosperity cult, how I can get saved, how I can be blessed. And it's all about me, 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 and more about ourselves than about others. But Pentecost and Ascension Day cut across that. It's, it's about King of Kings, Lord of Lords, all authority, great commission, and in the power of the Holy Spirit and getting out in the streets feet on the street, boots on the ground, into the neighborhoods and proclaiming God's word so that the entire city of Jerusalem was being evangelized. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were converted. I mean, this, this is the context. So what can be more important than getting right with God? So all these other Christian holidays, they're preparatory. But this is where the Great Commission is, is actually applied. And I think it's super important for us to get back to this. Pentecost Sunday should be a great time of celebration, but also reminding people of the Great Commission. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and our highest priority is love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The last command of Christ should be our first concern. The Great Commission should be our supreme ambition. And all of that should be emphasized on Pentecost Sunday. I completely agree. However, it is nearly, if not impossible, to even comprehend seeing people act so boldly today. The most fervent of believers still seem to have fear in how their neighbor will perceive them. So people tend to have more of a quiet um, internal faith as opposed to faith that is seen on the outside. So fast forward to now, 2022... Is there any way that we can get that kind of fervence, that kind of 
passion and zeal in our faith to proclaim the gospel boldly and live out the Great Commission? I'm sure we can, yes. And there are parts of the world where it is happening. And I'm going up to Northern Ireland as a guest of Ian Paisley and seeing how vibrantly the church in Northern Ireland was affected. And I thought Europe was spiritually dead. And I found in a mission to Europe in 2005 that, in fact, not so. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, each day of the week, the church was packed, packed, massive church, upstairs and down. I remember on the Friday night, uh, Ian Paisley saying, I want men to stay behind for a night of prayer. And we prayed into the early hours of the morning uh, on our knees in the church. And then on the next morning, out there in the streets, preaching at lunchtime outside of the city hall in Belfast. And people, thousands of people hearing the gospel. Just the, And apparently, Dr. Ian Paisley, who's a very busy man, I mean, he's got a nomination of 100 congregations, 100,000 members. He's a member of parliament also in Westminster, a member of the European Parliament, also in Strasbourg, and running a Bible college. And yet, he never missed every Friday lunchtime. He was out in the streets, preaching in front of the statue of Queen Victoria um, outside of Belfast City Hall. And he had such PA systems, they said that people could hear the gospel for at least uh, half a mile <clears throat> in any direction. So, that that was incredible. And uh, he had me preaching there too, and I asked, you know, what are they doing to evangelize Roman Catholics? And he said, oh, would you like to join our evangelist? He'll come around and get you tomorrow morning. So I'm picked up by the door-to-door evangelist the next day, and we're driving along, and I said, so do you get um, any opposition from the IRA? He said, yes, well, a few weeks ago I was uh, dragged into a van and uh, hooded and dragged into a dungeon, somebody's basement, and uh, while I was hooded, they started up drills and sharpening knives. And, and then when I pulled it up, they had this drill close to his knees and said, you keep preaching to Catholics, we'll kneecap you. Now, kneecap means cripple a person. They either shoot them through kneecap or drill them through kneecap. Don't even want to think about it. Hmm. So he tells me this and stops and, okay, well, let's go up this uh, driveway and get out the vehicle and walk up there just reading Gospels of John, uh, two different Roman Catholic homes. And I, I should have said, this is on Falls Road. The Falls Road, if you'd ever paid attention to news coming from Northern Ireland when there was all the troubles, the fighting and so on, Falls Road is Roman Catholic, and you can't miss it. And there's crucifixes everywhere. There's Irish flags. There's all sorts of reminders. The wall art is just totally, totally IRA, Irish brazen. Republican Army. Very, very brazen. Mm. And so there he'd been threatened with having his kneecap drilled out and... A few weeks later, uh, walking up to the same knocking on doors, man, present you a gospel of John and you know, do you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and things like this. So you get people like that. And then I was in Romania, fervent, enthusiastic, dynamic. The, the Christians in Romania, phenomenal. In the whole world, the largest number of Baptists in the world is, is in America. Second largest number of Baptists in the world is, is in Russia. And third largest is in Romania, mm. interestingly enough. Now, in Europe, the largest number of Christians, born-again Christians, any denomination, not percentage, just number. Russia's got the largest number of born-again Christians in Europe. Mm. Ukraine's got the second largest, which makes it tragic that those two countries are at war right now because we've got friends True. on both sides. There's missionaries that we know working in Ukraine who need our prayers right now too, including uh, President P.W. Borta's granddaughter, who's one of our friends, Shanna. She's in, in Ukraine ministering. We should be praying for these people. 
But third largest group of Christians in Europe is Romania. Uh, well, one of the brightest spots spiritually in, in Europe that I saw spiritually was Eastern, uh, was Eastern Europe, but in the Western Europe, I would have said Northern Ireland. Mm. So there are places, and then I can take you to places in Sudan and Nigeria and the Congo where there's exuberant, enthusiastic evangelism, people doing street preaching, people preaching in the marketplaces. And in Asia, there's also places like that, such as in, in South Korea. So we should not assume that the fires of Pentecost have gone out. There are places where it's still quite dynamic, but we need to get back to history, back to the Bible, and we need this. Much of what's going on in our churches is dull and lifeless, and there's not enough evangelism, not enough world vision, and in many cases, there's not enough prayer, and or there's not that many members of the church taking part in the prayer meeting. So plainly, we need what Andrew Murray says, which is well, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. Well, it seems that there's this pattern that those who are under persecution physically under fire or spiritually under fire, they are the ones who seem to have the most active, bold, living out their faith um, kind of environments, whereas those of us who are living in a peaceful time, quote unquote, um, we're not living out our faith the way they are. So there seems to be this direct correlation between persecution and fervency in your prayer life. Yes, well, that's certainly what I've noticed as a missionary to persecute Christians for the last 40 years. Uh, but we still need to remember in history, there have been revivals that came in times of peace. The great 1860 revival in South Africa mm-hmm. under Andrew Murray, it was not a time of war persecution, yet a phenomenal revival broke out. And people should study 1860 and mm-hmm. the, Murray, uh, the revival under Andrew Murray. But this was um, amidst lots of prayer. I mean, days yes, of prayer, were, right? That, that's right. In fact, there was about a year of days of prayer leading up to the mm-hmm. great uh, uh, evangelical awakening of, of 1860. And uh, similarly, uh, there's uh, many of the other revivals. If you think of the great evangelical awakening of the 1700s under George Whitfield, John Wesley, and, and Jonathan Edwards, that was also in time of peace. Mm-hmm. So you can have revivals in time of peace. Uh, but let's face it, it's, it's not quite as, as common. So to give you a bit of a feel for what kind of things were happening in the 1860 revival, 1860 revival uh, in, in South Africa, there were poor pastors such as in Calvinia where he had, the pastor had not managed to convince one single member of his congregation once to attend one prayer meeting. And so this poor pastor before the revival, he no one was interested, no one in missions, next to nobody interested in going and studying at the Theological Seminary, which was at Stellenbosch, what's today Stellenbosch University. John Murray, Reverend John Murray, the elder brother of Andrew Murray, had failed to get more than four students to study for theology, and they were so short of ministers. But after the revival hit, they had 50 new theological students the very next year. And after the revival hit, uh, Calvinia, the church was swollen. There was no space to accommodate the prayer meeting. When the revival hit uh, in Paul, the Dutch Reformed Church had to expand dramatically. Uh, and you'll see a lot of churches, Dutch Reformed churches around the country, such as in Franschhoek and Stellenbosch and Paul, where they built out the two side wings afterwards. Before the revival, they had a rectangular church. After the revival, they had to build side wings. So they then were in a cruciform Mm. cross shape. And then they added the upper galleries because they needed to get more people. And so many churches you can literally see, when were the additions made? 1861, 1862, direct results of the 1860 revival. And uh, the uh, missionary sending ministry that came out of it, that as a direct result of the 1860 revival, 
over 600 people were trained and sent out as missionaries from the Wellington Africa Institute, uh, overseen by Andrew Murray, which went as far as Nigeria, Malawi, Sudan. And I've seen the graves and the churches established by the missionaries who came out from South Africa. I was in Tivland up in in the um, uh, east of Nigeria uh, some time back, and they were celebrating the centenary of Christianity arriving there from missionaries from Wellington, the African Institute, from the South Africa General Mission uh, from South Africa. And just you could see real major impact. A revival hit, and suddenly there was prayer. Suddenly there was recruits for training, and there were missionaries going into the field. That is the fruit of revival. Incredible. Do you think that the day of Pentecost, speaking of all of these incredible um, experiences that have taken place since the day of Pentecost, do you think that this is a unique, never-to-be-repeated occurrence, or do you think this can happen again in the future? In one sense, it was unique, but on the other hand, even the Bible, you read that just as the day of Pentecost um, had such an impact in Jerusalem, there was a similar Pentecost outpouring on the Samaritans. And then we read uh, after Acts 8, we go up to Acts 10 and 11, and we see there was another Pentecostal outpouring upon the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So it was like the, the theme, as you see in the beginning of Acts, Acts 1 verse 8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be more witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of earth. And so you see an outpouring in Jerusalem and Judea. And then you see an outpouring on the Samaritans. And then you see an outpouring upon the Gentiles, mm-hmm. the utmost parts of earth. And so the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, the spiritual capital of the world, and ends in Rome, the secular capital of the world. And so plainly, um, even the book of Acts we see, while Pentecost in terms of scope and impact was unique, and yet the same kind of blessings were poured out with people going out and proclaiming God's boldness amongst Samaritans and upon Gentiles. And then you look in church history, and there have been, I mean, it's rare, but there have been times that there's been phenomenal outpourings of God's blessing. So take, for example, Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, 1859. 1859, there was a real hunger for revival. There'd been people praying for it uh, and, and seeking God for, for revival. And there was one school teacher who said to a young boy who was plainly more spiritually uh, serious than others, could you not do something more for God? Could you not gather some of your careless friends together for Bible study or prayer meeting? So he took the challenge and he got four other friends. And so the five of them gathered a whole lot of coals in their arms, carried the coal to the schoolhouse, which wasn't locked, just gives you an indication of change of times. Mm-hmm. And uh, they started a fire in the hearth to warm up because it was winter, which was actually December um, 1858 at the time they started this. And they'd warm up the building and they'd warm up themselves and then they would pray and warm up their souls and the prayer meeting started to grow and within a few months it was something like 50 young people gathering every Friday night for prayer and it's recorded and I went to these very places with Ian Paisley uh, showing me and your mom around and it was wonderful on the 150th anniversary of this great revival we were there in 2009 and we went to the actual school house went to different places well down at the school the teacher um, saw one of the youngsters who was plainly under some kind of conviction of sin or had a problem. So he asked this more spiritual-minded prayer group leader to take him home and counsel him, which he did. 
Well, later on the day, this youngster came back and he totally transformed. He flung up his arms and he shouted, Oh, teacher, I am so overjoyed the Lord Jesus has come into my heart. That's all he said. And suddenly there was conviction of sin falling upon the classroom and some of the students went outside and, and the teacher encouraged some of these more spiritual ones to go and counsel. And next thing you could hear heart-rending sobs and people weeping and repenting and confessing their sins. And without understanding what was going on, the girls in the upper floor, when they heard this, some went to the windows and conviction of sin came on them. They fell on the knees, started to confess their sins. Adults walking past heard this commotion from the school and wanted to go and see, but then came under conviction and fell on their knees amongst the stone, the dirt, and the mud in some places and started to cry out to God for mercy. And more and more people gathered, and the school was only able to close doors at 11 p.m. that night. The next morning, people gathered from all over in the town square. It was so large a group that they couldn't speak to them all at once so they had to divide up the group into four they had four ministers so they divided mm. four each to speak to people and people knelt in the streets and confessed their sins and repented and this spread there was one church we went to where the people were packed in church so much that they feared the upper galleries would give way and they asked the people to go outside and it was under light drizzle and so the ground outside was muddy and the people knelt in the mud and amidst mm. the stones outside and prayed fervently for ages and there's a cathedral downtown that they showed us where you could literally see that the two pillars in the front of the church had been moved off their moorings that been so great was the press of the harbor workers and factory workers and the sailors rough people came into church that literally they're so wedged in that the the stone pillars were moved off and you can still see plainly that it's been moved off its moorings amazing um, almost like a Samson type of thing, but not to destruction, <laughs> just a few inches off uh, inwards at, at a bit of an angle. And when they called for Charles Burton to come and speak there, there was no place big enough. He had to go into the gardens, mm -hmm. literally the, the, the park, to speak because there was no building that could accommodate the amount of people that gathered. And the changes that came, I went to Wales where there'd been the great revival in 1904-1905 on the 100th anniversary of this. And when I went there, uh, the people were saying, you know, there's whole districts here where they still don't sell alcohol. If you ask them why the pub doesn't sell alcohol, they say, well, there was a revival here in 1904, <laughs> and they haven't had wine or anything since. And then there's some other parts in England where you can literally go, and there's no pub in town serving any beer or any alcohol because they said, well, the revival hit in 1740-something in the days of John Wesley wow. came past. And and there's been that impact. So bizarre, but there are impacts like that, tremendous things that have changed. And yes, I think it's, as Charles Spurgeon said, Oh God, send us the Holy Spirit. Give us both the breath of spiritual life and a fire of unconquerable zeal. You are a God. Answer us by fire, we pray to you. Answer us both by wind and fire, and then they will see you to be God indeed. The kingdom comes not. The work is flagging. Oh, that you would send the wind and the fire, and you will do this when we are all of one accord, all believing, all expecting, all prepared by prayer. So that's just a prayer that came from Charles Spurgeon at about that time. Incredible. Well, clearly this is one of several um, occurrences that 
uh, emulates a little bit of what took place in the Pentecost, a massive moving of faith and conviction and repentance. Um, so there must be a chance that this could happen in the future. But what would you say needs to take place in order for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit like these people were? Well, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. I think the first thing is Bible study. We've got to understand who God is. So you may say, we need more prayer meetings. Yes, but the trouble is we're not well taught enough. We often need to do more studying on the Bible, on nature of God, on uh, on the day of Pentecost, for example. So I'd say Bible study is the first thing, prayer meetings is the second. So, for example, you get how uh, John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make the paths straight, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain brought low. Make a straight, every crooked path made straight. And John the Baptist was the greatest man born of woman, Jesus said. John the Baptist was the one who's the voice crying in the wilderness. Now, here's the voice. Jesus is the word. Mm -hmm. And John said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, his he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into bond. He, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist had a very important task to prepare the way for the Lord and to remind people that it's not just baptism. Important as baptism is, but after baptism, you should look for a baptism of fire. And Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. I mean, just think on day of Pentecost, there was tongues of fire. And the significance is that when God made his covenant with Abraham, he revealed himself as a burning torch. And when God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself through the burning bush. In fact, to this day, the Presbyterian church in Northern Ireland in particular is symbolized by a burning bush. Mm. And the children of Israel were led through the wilderness by the presence of God manifested by a pillar of cloud by, night, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when King David built an altar to the Lord and offered sacrifices and called on the Lord, God answered him from heaven by setting fire on his altar. And in 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon had finished praying to dedicate the temple, the first temple, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt sacrifice on the altar, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Mm. And when Elijah challenged the false prophets of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel, each would build an altar, each would lay on it wood and a sacrifice, and the God answers by fire. He is to be recognized as the one true God. And the hundreds of false prophets called on Baal, they danced, they cried aloud, they cut themselves, and the blood flowed, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near, and he prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and I am your servant, that I have done these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and evaporated the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Hmm. And when Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord enthroned in heaven, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. 
So I said to me, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has purged your lips. Your iniquity and your sin is taken away. And I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I answered, Here am I, Lord, send me. And so when we look at what the Bible teaches about the fire of God, and we start to ask questions like, Do we have a vision of the holiness of God? And have you any understanding of the depravity of man? And do you repent of your own sinfulness? And have you experienced the fire of God purging your sin? Have you heard the call of God, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And have you answered, here am I, Lord, send me. This is it. We, we need more study of the fire of God. We need more study of the power of Pentecost, mm -hmm. of the nature of God. And I think that will create a greater hunger and a greater thirst, which will lead to the kind of prayers and seeking God and seeking his face and turning from wicked ways. That prepares the way for revival. Well, it's certainly a lot of food for thoughts. And I think a huge encouragement to those of us who want to change going forward and to actually make a difference and an impact on our world. So for those of us listening today who are thinking, yes, that's what I want. How can I make an impact on my church and my society, on the world do you have any advice and recommendations for those who are thinking this? Yes. I think the single most important thing that you can do is start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. Now, if there is one in your church or school or workplace, join it. If there isn't one, start it. And you don't need a lot of people to start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. In fact, our mission began really uh, back in 1979 when I first was conscripted in the South African Infantry. And I stood up on a Sunday after the chaplain's service was over and asked chaplain if I could speak. And I was terrified and it was very intimidating. But I turned and faced this hall filled with hundreds of young men, all with shaven heads and wearing the same brown uniform as I had. And I said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. I want to honor him during my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please come and see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and a prayer fellowship. Well, I met a few people, of which it's very busy in military training, uh, very intense. Uh, but nevertheless, three of us started a nightly Bible and prayer fellowship, which grew in the next three months up to seven, eight, and then the second phase up to uh, about 24. And by the end of our two years uh, in the military, the Bible study and prayer fellowship had grown to 84, but that's across three companies and uh, which who had deployed different places. But when we all came back on our last night in the army, we had 84 of us who were meeting for Bible study and prayer. So, and out of that, people went to Wycliffe Bible translators, YWAM, OM, all kinds of missions all over the world, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. I mean, amazing fruits came from that. And our little mission began there too. It was starting a Bible study and prayer fellowship. And, you know, it was often not that dramatic. It was often just um, seeing what the word says, but the foundations laid. I think one of the most significant things any of us can do is start a Bible study and prayer fellowship, wherever we are, school, college, work, neighborhood, uh, women's groups, men's groups, youth groups. Uh, but getting people together around the Word of God and pray is very, very key. And to help people in that, um, I've produced books like the Old Testament Survey and New Testament Survey so people can have a summary of 
some of the background and the books and some of the key things to help guide a person who may not have much training in the Word of God. But there's something extremely therapeutic to just mm. read through and discuss and pray through the, every book of the Bible. And uh, amongst the different things you can see, uh, for example, I mean, just consider this, that Ezekiel saw the fire of God. And Daniel described God's eyes being like a fire. And Hosea described God's coming inferno. And Joel wrote of God's fiery presence. Obadiah saw the fire of God in the midst of his people. Micaiah saw the mountains melt like wax before the fire of God. Nahum foresaw the day of God's fiery judgment. Zephaniah saw the fire of God's holy jealousy. Zechariah wrote of God's burning presence like a blazing wall with his glory revealed within. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, spoke of God's refining fire to purge and purify and strengthen his people. And when our Lord rose from dead and walked with his disciples and rode to Emmaus, afterwards the disciples said, Did not a heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And so this is the point. We need to hear the word of God and his word will burn. His word is like a flame within us. It's mm -hmm. like a fire within us. It's like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is spiritual seed. It's like a sword that penetrates even to dividing of soul and spirit and motives. So uh, when you think of how in the tabernacle, Leviticus 6 says that a fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. So this symbolizes the perpetual flame, the presence of God is purging, is penetrating powerful presence with his people. And so uh, we should be reminded that let my light shine. When we read about not putting your lamp under a, a bushel and not putting it under a basket, not hiding it and letting your, your lamp shine, well, remember a torch at that stage wasn't something with batteries and a bulb. Um, a torch was a, a wooden stick with maybe an oil rag around it, uh, which was a flame. And so when, when the Bible is speaking about let your light shine, it's meaning you've got to basically be on fire. Mm, incredible. Well, you've certainly referenced a lot of scripture verses um, to inspire us here. But is there a certain book of the Bible or passage you recommend um, entrepreneurial Bible studies or prayer groups um, start in? Yes. So, well, uh, of course, we all commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, we should understand that we commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit means being filled with the Word of God, being filled with the Spirit of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ uh, told us that if my words abide in you, if, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. And it's because the Word of God's got power and God's Word never returns void. So studying God's Word, filling our lives with the Word of God, filling our, ourselves with with the power of God, uh, through the word of God, this prepares us for real powerful prayer. Um, we've got a book also written on the power of prayer handbook. Uh, but I would say if you can go into the Psalms and start praying the Psalms and making the Psalms your prayers, mm. that's key. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, John Wesley said, give me 100 men who love God with all their hearts, who fear no one but God and who hate nothing but sin. I will change the world. Mm. And so we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit meaning filled with the very nature of God, uh, with filled with Christ, filled with love, which is accessed by studying the Word of God. I mean, this is the power of God. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the command in Ephesians 5 verse, verse 18 is be filled with the Holy Spirit. But 
it's in the active. It's be being filled. It's in the uh, present continuous. Mm. Be being filled. It's in the passive. Let yourself be continually filled uh, by the Holy Spirit. Mm. It's it's a, a command. It's a continuous command to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we can't think of it, well, you know, this is just a sovereign move of God. Well, revival is a sovereign move of God. But um, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a command of God. Mm. So for me to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God and be consciously practicing the presence of God. And so to be filled with the Spirit is, is a high priority. To take what Andrew Murray said, Andrew Murray who's the most successful South African minister in history, the most productive, prolific author in South African history. He produced over 200 books, which have been the most translated books in South African history. And they've never been out of print for over 140-odd years, most of these books. And uh, Andrew Murray, who is blessed with this great revival that started in Worcester, spread through Wellington, all over the Cape, uh, he wrote, the one thing needful for the church and the one thing which above all others men ought everywhere to seek for with one accord and with the whole heart is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, Hudson Taylor wrote, the great founder of China Inland Mission, he said, the power given is not a gift from the Holy Spirit. He himself is the power. Today he is as truly available and as mighty in power as he was on the day of Pentecost. Mm. So we, we do need to be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As the Bible says, as the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Amen. So those who want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as you just quoted from Matthew 5, verse 6, do you have any upcoming events where people can participate to be filled with this hunger and thirst? Yes, we have the Great Commission course coming up, and that is something super important. We all need to be ready for the Great Commission uh, course, and that is a three-week intensive program. It's starting on the 24th of June. That's not that far away. No, Less than weeks. four weeks away. Uh, we are talking about, yes, it would be more like three weeks away, 24th of June to the 13th of July. Now, for over two decades, we've had participants for the Great Commission course coming from as far afield as Australia and America, Britain and Botswana, from Canada and the Congo, from Ghana and Germany, from Namibia and New Zealand, from Malawi and Mozambique, even from Sudan and, of course, around South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. So the GCC is uniquely practical. It's a missionary training program for those who want to be more innovative, more effective, and especially cross-cultural evangelism. It's intensive. It's boots on the ground. It's body, mind, and spirit. We stretch minds and muscles. Uh, we get people up and over the mountains. We uh, have daily PT. We have outreaches. Uh, people get involved in a lot of practical things. There are lectures. There are practical there's exams. But it widens vision. It deepens faith. We've been doing the Great Commission course for, well, uh, 24 years already. And uh, uh, this one, based in Cape Town, uh, focused on a world evangelism, but people who are interested in learning more about missions, contact us, mission at frontline.org.za, mission at frontline.org.today, or you can phone 021 689-4480, 689-4480 in Cape Town, or you can go on the web, frontlinemissionsa.org, and you'll see upcoming events, Great Commission course. There's some videos, pictures, reports, details about previous ones, application form. So if you're interested in making the Great Commission your supreme ambition, well, the Great Commission course is unique and it's right here in Cape Town. Absolutely. Um, as one of the few who've been attending these Great Commission courses for 
well, really my whole life, um, in varying degrees of participation, I can say I highly recommend this personally. So if you are interested, please do reach out. Again, you can call 021-689-4480, or you can reach out to mission at frontline.co.za to get more information. Um, thank you so much, Dad. Mission at frontline.org.za. I apologize. Mission at frontline.org.za. If you would like to reach out and get an application, find out more details about the Great Commission course from the 24th of June to the 13th mm. of July. That's just three weeks away, folks. So don't mm. wait. Apply right Indeed. Now. And I should also say that if you're interested in a Great Commission team coming to minister to your church or youth group or school, I know it's generally during school holidays, but contact us as well. That's also a possibility. And by the way, later in July, we're going to have Dr. Philip Stott and Dr. Angela Stott in Cape Town. So people interested in getting these creation scientists to speak at their church or school, contact us as well. So mission at frontline.org.za. We'd love to hear from you if you would like to be part of the GC or organize something for a GC team to visit and minister with your people. We've had churches asking us to join them for outreaches, door-to-door, street preaching, a whole range of things. And if your church wants to do that, it's nice to have a group of enthusiastic outsiders, including foreigners with a different accent, who might help you in your local church outreach. Mm -hmm. And we'll always bring literature and Bibles to freely distribute there as well. Well, you heard it here, folks. There's a lot of exciting opportunities coming up here. Dad, you've given us lots to think about on the importance of Pentecost and how we can move forward with this in mind. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. Uh, from from the front line, I'm Andrea Combs. With me, Dr. Peter Hammond, my dad. Thank you for joining us tonight, and God bless. <laughs>